Welcome, uh, welcome, folks. Um, does the sound sound good? Okay. How are you doing? Even though you're force muted, make a gesture. Okay. Good. So, um, yeah, happy to to be with you. Um, I was kind of. I was looking over my notes and I was kind of laughing to myself. Um, uh, you know, my my fellow teachers, they're, uh, they're pedagogically very skilled. Their teaching skills are, are kind of exquisite. They sort of like uh, dose out these like nuggets of wisdom and then illustrate them and then tie them to practice and life and and um and i kind of just sit down and vomit up everything i know all at once and um kind of an acquired taste but um anyway here we are so uh truth truthfulness So Jesus said to those who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my true disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's John uh, chapter eight, verse 31. So will, will the truth set us free? Is the truth in our our beliefs or is it um is it in our bones in our actions there are a lot of ways of conceiving of the dharma a lot of ways in which the dharma implies a way that it works and one of the major models that the dharma implies is that um that uh, the liberating power of the teachings are to know the truth, to know the Dharma is to know the truth, seeing the truth, one's heart is, um, is freed. And from this view, uh, ignorance of Ija is the wellspring of difficulties. So this is from the uh, Samyutta Nikaya. Uh, ignorance is the leader in the attainment of unskillful qualities, followed by lack of conscience and concern. In an unknowledgeable person immersed in ignorance, wrong view arises. In one of wrong view, wrong intention. In one of wrong intention, wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood, wrong effort, wrong mindfulness. In one of wrong mindfulness, wrong concentration arises. And so um, the traditional antidote is, um, is knowledge and vision of things as they, they really are. And there's, um, there's an appeal in that model, in that way of thinking about the Dharma. Um, but I'm, uh, there's a part of me that has a little bit of caution and I'm, I'm not a uh, 
not a philosopher, but have read read enough enough East and West to to know that that truth, capital T, truth, the final truth, that's tricky business. That's tricky business. There are um, a lot of debates, a lot of complexity. Um, and it encourages a measure of humility in me, in what I think I know, in how much, what kind of privileged access practice has given me to truth. Uh, I know what freedom it has given me. I'm not, can never answer finally the question of how much truth I know. The, uh, the philosopher, uh, Rorty uh, wrote, um, the reason for thinking that there will be no last philosophy is simply that no answer can fail to be an answer to a question and no question can guarantee its own permanent relevance. It's interesting to to consider like the um, how the questions the Dharma is trying to answer have evolved over time, if they've evolved. What are the new questions the Dharma is trying to answer? So all this is to say that I don't proclaim some access to uh, capital T truth, the last philosophy, as Rorty puts it. Um, but, but we find that um, small t truth is all that one needs to free one's heart. I, I like the word fidelity, fidelity. Un- unfold this. We do, uh, we do learn what it's like to look through eyes that are less and less ensnared by clinging. We do learn to um, develop a certain kind of fidelity with ourselves, an honesty, an honesty, a deep honesty with ourselves. And we find that that is actually enough. That's enough. The, the practice, in a way, the practice begins with a commitment to looking deeply. The first question of practice is, what is it like to be human? What is it actually like to be human? Not what do we think it is, what, do we, what have we been told it is, what do we think it should be, what do we think we ought to feel, what do we th- think we ought to manifest. It's like, what is it actually like to be human? And so it, it begins with this kind of um, an inquiry, like into reality, what is happening here? And the Dharma is, um, in our practice, we make a commitment 
um, to non-deception in a lot of ways, maybe most importantly, we make a commitment not to rationalizing one's life, one's habits, one's preferences. It is very easy to effectively rationalize the kalesas, the forces of, of, of greed, hatred, delusion, the wellsprings of suffering in the Buddhist psychology. And the way, the way that delusion often works is to effectively paper over greed and aversion. And it does this with incredible speed. It leaves almost no trace. Yeah. The, the ego, of course, involved um, wherever there is suffering. And, um, and the hallmark of ego is, is defensiveness. That, that is its, its hallmark. And so we actually have to um, gather a certain kind of courage to move against self-deception, to stop rationalizing the forces of, of suffering. This is a kind of fundamental commitment in our, in our practice. And we gather courage, we gather courage to tolerate more seeing, to tolerate more reality. We gather courage because uh, revelation is not always um, comfortable. It, it doesn't, doesn't promise consolation yeah and while our spiritual maturation frees our heart of many forms of uh, neurotic pain uh, as far as i can tell it actually our you know our growing freedom actually deepens certain species of pain as we become less self-absorbed, as the gaze naturally turns outwards, there's, um, there's ways in which it hurts more to be human. So over the course of my, my practice, I have, um, I've cycled through many different intentions, um, sort of like the animating force behind practice. And I, I've tended to, not just me, but generally to kind of tend to start small. We, we look out at like the vast range of the Dharma field and we kind of have the sense like, okay, I'm going to add something to my life. Yeah, here's my life and then I'm going to add something in. I'm going to add in mindfulness. I'm going to add in compassion and what we try to do in a sense 
is is kind of like uh, nestle the dharma into the infrastructure of our neurosis. Yeah, I kind of like wedge it in. Yeah, and for sure, this is my path, and. Um, and then there are periods of time when I didn't even know why I was practicing. There was no, I, I knew I wasn't going to stop, but um, I didn't even, I wouldn't even be able to articulate like what, what it was I was doing. I just knew there was something vital about it. And over time, maybe the, the intentions around practice evolve. They become uh, maybe more, um, oriented to alleviating the suffering of others. What I fall back on, the intention I fall back on, maybe my most trusted intention is something like curiosity, interest. Maybe we say a hunger for truth, for seeing. And the beautiful thing about curiosity is that it has no agenda. It has no agenda. The only, there's no kind of outcome. There's no transaction. There's, it's not, it does not have the acquisitive kind of feel of some of the other intentions. It's very conducive to growth. And Maybe you know this, maybe you've had this already, this retreat, maybe this will unfold for you, but there can be this kind of hunger to, you know, like this, uh, yeah, this hunger to really, like when the seeing becomes very alive, when the seeing, this happens a lot on retreat, it can happen in home retreat like this, where just to look, just to be aware is fully satiating. Yeah, just to look is enough. And there are times, and retreat is a, an opportunity, there are times when we come to um, care in a sense, more about awareness than what we call our life, more about awareness than our progress, than our concentration, more about awareness than the tides of pleasure and pain and hope and fear, even the longing to be free recedes into the background. I just want to know, I want to know. Gil uh, Franzdahl said, um, he just said it kind of offhandedly, um, you know, maybe we shouldn't call it mindfulness practice, maybe just call it honesty practice, yeah, and the spirit of honesty, of not deceiving oneself, of not deceiving others, this is quite quite central. And I do, um, I associate uh, 
Buddhism and intellectual honesty quite closely. Um, I was, I was like, had the hypersensitivity to hypocrisy as a kid, even when I was really young, like any kind of sense of, yeah, of hypocrisy or kind of not leveling or dishonesty, deception. I had like a spidey sense for it, you know? And it, um, it really bothered me. It really bothered me, you know? And, um, yeah, and it led me, it led me without even knowing I was looking for it. It led me into the path. It led me into the path because I could sense the way the, the harm inherent when we transgress against truth against honesty, against uh, a a kind of honesty. And um, yeah, and just to come back to the moment, there's a kind of honesty in that, you know. It's like sometimes you're sitting and you don't know what's going on and uh, some agitation or something, and it's like, the truth of the moment needs to be known before we can start to settle. It's like, oh, yeah, that's what this is. And then the heart starts to relax. It's like the truth, the reality of the moment has been blessed with awareness and we can start to relax. The Dharma path Um, in a way it kind of starts with a humble, honest recognition and goes something like, uh, this isn't going to work out. Yeah. The way I've been doing my life. I I don't know the answer, but I know that this isn't going to work out. And so the suffering sets us forward looking in some way. And um, the, the Buddha suggested that um, something like there is a kind of longing for the truth, but that our default, the default position of our mind is delusion rather than clarity. The default position of our mind is delusion rather than clarity. And we can see this from, you know, just reflecting on ourselves as animals that um, pristine clarity is not at the top of um, evolution's to-do list. Yeah? Right? It's like it has other other agenda items, yeah? And so this is an interesting zone where it's like uh, the group think conformity, certain kind of um, distortions are probably evolutionarily advantageous, yeah? A certain kind of programming towards delusion an evolutionary uh, psychologist, Marty Hasselton. She writes, um, 
On the surface, cognitive biases appear to be somewhat puzzling when viewed through an evolutionary lens. Because they depart from the standards of logic and accuracy, they appear to be design flaws instead of examples of good engineering. To the evolutionary psychologist, however, the question is not whether the cognitive feature is accurate, but rather how well it solves a particular problem and how solving this problem contributed to fitness ancestrally. Viewed in this way, if a cognitive bias positively impacted fitness, it's not a design flaw, it's a design feature. Some co genuine cognitive biases may, might be functional features designed by the wisdom of natural selection. So I imagine she's right about that. And one of the implications, I, I think, is that um, the, the Dharma, it will take us against the stream, will take us against the stream because um, the, the Buddha suggested that we, we don't see the three characteristics we see the three not characteristics, yeah? Dukkha, anicca, anatta, un unsatisfactoriness, impermanence, unreliability, uh, kind of empty centerlessness of life. We don't perceive this we perceive their opposites. We fantasize about a, uh, a durable pleasure that um, can quench some deep thirst. And we fantasize about, um, about tying up all the, the loose ends of being human of like holding the world still. That's like a very fundamental kind of fantasy that, that still runs through me. Like, can I just hold the, get it so, and then just hold the world still. And so we game out samsara, we game out this human realm. We try to, to manage uncertainty, we try to maybe live forever. And we fantasize about um, the opposite of anatta. We fantasize about taking refuge in an identity. We have a deep abiding urge to, to possess, to make make of this realm of impermanence things, yeah? To make a verb into a noun, to have and to hold. These, um, these are very deep currents in our mind. And so we're asked to look, to look carefully, to look carefully, what do we see? 
dukkha, anicca, nata. We don't have to look for those like um, uh, in a kind of analytic sort of way. We, the continuity of attention will bring us into contact with this. Yeah. And of course, in this time, this year, 2020, is mercilessly pounding this into us. But the question is, can we transform the observation into insight? In a sense, we're all observing dukkha, nicca, anatta, but that is different than actually transforming it into insight. And sometimes before insight grows in our heart, before it becomes liberating, we need first to grieve dukkha, anicca, anatta, before we allow some of the truth of that into our heart, before it becomes more and more liberating, we, we grieve the characteristics. I, I had a uh, Tibetan, Tibetan Buddhist teacher, mentor, um, who said something like, um, trust your experience, but refine your view. Trust your experience, but refine your view. We're not trying to inject doubt into everything we experience, all the sensory experience. We're not trying to, um, yeah, cast doubt on on the, the reality of that. But I do want to acknowledge that the view, the view can be refined. The view can be refined. And wise view, the view and the perception interact. Yeah, the view and the perception interact. We're, we're, we're uh, learning to... Um, yeah, to see see uh, more and more uh, carefully, more and more deeply, less and less through the lens of the kilesas, of the greed, hatred, and delusion. And so, in a way, our um, our practice is like, uh, uh, yeah, I vow to explore my view. Part of um, part of honesty, transparency, becoming more and more transparent to ourselves, is um, acknowledging how easy it is to pull a fast one on ourselves. You know, like to to fool ourselves, and. Um, Yeah, it's um, 
it's been said um, that uh, that people people believe they think uh, like scientists, but they actually think more like uh, trial lawyers. And uh, given that we literally have a trial lawyer on the team here, this is not a passive aggressive dig at Twery in her former life. This is, uh, we're in the same posse. I didn't say this, Tanya Lombroso said it anyway. Uh, so when a scientist does like a randomized controlled trial, she does not know what she'll find, yeah? Does not know whether the medicine is going to best the placebo, right? And in a way, it's like we gather the, the evidence. We gather the evidence to support a view. This is a medicine or this is, doesn't work, right? In some situations, uh, the, there, it's, you know, in certain, certain legal contexts, it's, it's actually working backwards where you begin with the conclusion, yeah? And then work backwards to justify it. And we tend to think of ourselves more as scientists, but, but often our minds work backwards. We have a, a preferred conclusion and then we work backwards and justify it, rationalize it. We have an impulse and then we lay some ideas over it to, to dignify it, yeah? And, you know, one of the humbling aspects of practice is much of our lives are really a rationalization of, um, of our conditioning and our preferences. It's humbling to see that we, we can build enormous, elaborate, moral, political philosophies that are really just a river into which our kilesas flow. Yeah. We have to develop a certain kind of rigor with ourselves and emotional intelligence and honesty to see the, the ways in which out of just often just the building blocks of Vedana, the building blocks of feeling, we can construct this whole world. And we need to know those building blocks, that world, empty, empty, empty. And it's not like we must live without some guiding philosophy or something like this, but we wanna really sensitize ourselves to the way in which the, um, yeah, we can act out our preferences, our reactivity, our reactivity becomes a way of life. Our reactivity becomes of a, a philosophy. Yeah. 
truthfulness, non-deceptiveness, transparency, all of this is, is relevant in um, how we, we relate to our inner life, how we relate to um, our secrets. Freud said um, that human beings are the animals that keep secrets, yeah? And um, another writer said something like, um, uh, we're, not, um, we're not what we think, we are what we hide. Now, secrecy is not the same as privacy. There, there may or may not be, you know, important reasons to, to share, to hold something, um, you know, to, to, uh, to hide something, to not share something. There are safety considerations and who are you talking to and the openness of the other. Can you entrust your heart to the other? I'm not talking about about privacy. I'm talking about the secrecy, the secrets that are, it's that which we we hide from others, but we also are kind of hiding from ourselves. And these secrets, sometimes they have a weird state. They they occupied a a weird place in our minds where there can almost be this dance between denial and revelation. This is real. No, it's not. I've got a problem. No, I don't. Yeah. And so we, we start to watch that dance of secrecy. And we recognize that, that keeping, keeping secrets is, that's an active process. Yeah, it requires deliberate energy. And uh, one, one researcher, Wagner, wrote, uh, the cognitive maneuvers necessary for keeping a secret create an intentional suppression of the secret thought, the consequence of which is a preoccupation with the secret itself. It's stressful. It's stressful. It, there's anxiety. There's an anxiety of being found out. And there's a lot of freedom, a lot of freedom when we're living our lives without fear of being found out. Yeah. It's, it's, um, yeah, part of the freedom of Dharma is there's this sense of, of transparency such that we, we don't feel like we can be found out. So we look where we're deceptive. We're in home retreat. Maybe we're interacting or a- anywhere in any context. Like we look, okay, where is there some deception? So an, a psychologist, Bella DePaulo, Uh, She writes, occasionally people tell lies in pursuit of material gain or convenience or escape punishment. More commonly, however, the rewards that are sought are psychological ones. We lie to make ourselves appear more sophisticated or more virtuous. 
We lie to protect ourselves and sometimes others from disapproval and disagreements or from getting our feelings hurt. The realm of lying then is one in which identities are claimed and impressions are managed. Identities claimed and impressions managed. And so secrets, secrets, they, they shine a light on the architecture of the self. Secrets shine a light on the architecture of the self. We're really uh, learning to see where there is, um, where we hide and secrets always involve some measure of shame or usually do. And shame is the most rigid, most fixated sense of self there is. And so we, we start to drain some of the emotional charge from this. We start to come into more of a relation with our own secrets we begin to drain some of the charge of the the shame. We learn about what we think a human being should be. We learn about what we think we should be, what we think we can't be, what we ought not be. We learn about all of this by following the thread to the deceptiveness. As we become more and more transparent, as we come into true with our own values, there's a kind of ease in that transparency. The world no longer reminds us of our secrets. Rilke says, um, I want to unfold. I don't want to be folded anywhere because where I am folded I am a lie. Part of why I teach, uh, teach Dharma is that um, I can be honest and I don't, um, I don't feel ashamed of what I care about. Yeah. That's not the case in all spheres. Like there are some places where I don't even want to share what I care about. I feel actually ashamed that I care about the, all this, all this whole world. Um, but there's a kind of honesty in, in this interpersonal realm here together where we can really speak about what it's actually like to be human. I need that for my own heart. Our honesty, it has, it has important interpersonal effects, like um, our ability to, to trust another. It depends in a way on the congruence of what the person is saying from their mouth and what their body is saying, right? We, we, we practice in such a way that the implicit and the explicit affect starts to match more. Yeah, that kind of congruence. 
what I'm saying, the meaning of my words and my heart that you feel. We, we come into deeper true with that, to deeper fidelity. And, um, and when, we, when we deceive others, when we, um, we delude them, we foster delusion in them, right? When we deceive them, we foster delusion, we confuse them. And that confusion may have impact in how they, how they live or what they do, their choices. They are living on the basis of delusion that we have injected into their life. And so it, it said that, um, that uh, lying, lying to others is, is um, a kind of attack upon the autonomy of those we lie to. Yeah. So we, um, we support the freedom of others by, uh, by being honest, by speaking the truth as best we know it. Bhikkhu Bodhi to realize truth, uh, our whole being has to be brought into accord with actuality, with things as they are, which requires that in communications with others, we respect things as they are by speaking the truth. Truthful speech establishes a correspondence between our own inner being and the nature of phenomena, allowing wisdom to rise up and fathom their real nature. Thus, more, much more than an ethical pr principle, devotion to truthful speech is a matter of taking our stand on reality rather than illusion, on the truth grasped by wisdom rather than the fantasies woven by desire. So, um, so we may, may not be able to claim the last final capital T truth, but we do know what honesty is. We do know what fidelity means. We commit to looking deeply to seeing clearly, to refining the view, to not rationalizing, craving, to integrity, to staying in alignment. We strive for honesty with ourselves, honesty in our relationships, honesty about the human condition about what it's like to be human. And all of that commitment to, to truth, to honesty, to non-deception, we can still hold the, the permanent possibility of being wrong. It feels like that's one of the 
gestures of the Dharma heart actually is a certain kind of, who knows when we're done with delusion. Yeah, because delusion uh, looks exactly like truth until it doesn't. Who knows when we're done with it? But that humility, that intellectual honesty uh, makes us more careful, more careful uh, about harming, yeah? That kind of openness makes us walk more gently in this world, never knowing what the the last word will be. Just, uh, just sit for a moment. So just let the uh, let the words fall away. And just rest for these last moments here together. Thank you. Thanks for your attention. And um, as always, please uh, please pick up whatever is um, is useful and and leave behind whatever's not. And um, we carry carry on carry on together. It's nice to be with you. So. Um, yeah, for those who uh, have uh, energy, please come back a couple hours. We'll sit sit together to close the evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash 
donate.